here. It's, um, especially if you're visiting, I hope you've been made to feel uh, incredibly welcome. Do stay around uh, at the end. We'd love to get to know you more. If you're um, a student or 20, I just encourage you, as Terry did, that weekend away is going to be a great time. Uh, we've got some friends. I was in Utrecht last week with our church there in, in Holland, uh, preaching there and seeing the work. It was great to be with them, and they're so excited about coming over and serving us. Uh, it's going to be a really great weekend, so do make sure you make that a priority first to the 3rd of November. I'm a little bit out of breath. <laughs> Sorry. Um, we're a few weeks into our uh, teaching series looking at the book of Genesis. Uh, I don't know about you, but I have thoroughly enjoyed it so far. Have you enjoyed it? Yeah. Good. Um, we've been looking at what it is to be made in God's image. And then we looked at God's plan for work. And then we looked at God's plan for rest. And then we had a break last week as we had a guest speaker. And I heard you had a wonderful time. I love, uh, I, if you've not listened to it, do what I did. Get on to our website, listen to that message on, online. Uh, it was a great time I know you had with Mark Jones. And um, today we get to the second half of the book of Genesis, which is the first book uh, in the Bible, and it looks at the creation of humanity. We've seen a little bit of that in, in Genesis 1, but it's, almost, it's a different retelling of the same story, and, and it looks more specifically at the creation of Eve. And so today, my focus is going to be on the topic of sexuality. And I want to say, just as a disclaimer, this is not a message for children, uh, if you've got tri- we've got loads of children's work and we've got youth work, I'd encourage you to go there. Um, now I can't be held responsible, okay? So anything I say, I've warned you parents. And so why do we want to focus on sexuality? Uh, and why, do we, why does God care about who I have sex with? Why does God care about my sexuality and how I express my sexuality? Well, I believe that the gospel is incredibly good news to a culture that is incredibly confused. We have a culture that says that if you want to know who you are, then you need to look inside yourself and then embrace living that life. So you find life and freedom by looking inside yourself. And that means that if you want to sleep with someone who's not your wife, then go for it. If you want to sleep with someone of the same sex, then go for it. If you want to have more than one partner, then go for it. However, as Christians, we must instead place our identity not on looking inside ourselves, but instead looking at who God is and who he says we are and embracing that identity. And God has a lot to say about our bodies and uh, our sexuality. And in 1 Corinthians 6, at verse 13, he tell, God tells us that sex is sacred. So what did God intend for our sexuality? And before I get to this, the passage that we're going to read today, I want to say that far too often the church has buried its head in the sand and not talked about the area of sexuality. It's pretended that culture has not changed. Or even worse, it has seen the change in culture and it has thought that it's only for people out there and it's shouted condemnation from the walls of the church loudly and it's made anyone who has a different sexual ethic see the church as an enemy. As a church, Jubilee, we've not talked about this topic enough. Uh, I last spoke on this topic in 2016, and I don't need to tell you that in the last three years, the landscape of what our culture says about sexuality has changed massively. And I want to say sorry. I want to say sorry on behalf of our leadership that we've not talked about this enough. And I want to say that today is a, is a, is a starting point for what we're going to talk about more in the weeks, months, and years to come. 
And I know that for many, this is a very emotive topic. For many of you, you, you're even now feeling a little bit like, oh, what's he going to say? And I don't bring this message lightly, but I do think it's important that we have meaningful conversations about how we engage with our world and our culture and how we faithfully live as disciples of Jesus. And if you are not a follower of Jesus here today, then what I want to say is you are incredibly welcome. I really hope you've been made to feel that welcome. But I also, what, you want, what I want you to know is that, that the teaching to follow is what we believe the Bible says about this issue. Therefore, that might be in contrast to what you believe or your worldview. I am not trying to impose any sexual ethic on you in whatsoever way. I, don't, I think the question for you should not be, how does God view sex? But instead it should be, who is Jesus? Because once you have decided about who Jesus is, then what he has to say changes. It changes how you view what he says. And we're currently running an alpha course with Phil and the team. Uh, I would encourage you, that's where you need to start. Listen to this message by all means, but come along on 7 o'clock on Wednesday where you can explore the question more. I want us to get into our passage now as I read from Genesis 2. It should come up on the screen. If you've got a Bible, uh, it might be really helpful just to sit with it in front of you or on your phone throughout the morning so you can refer back to it. But I'm going to be reading from verses 18 to 25, and it says this. The Lord said, it is not good for man to be alone, and I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds of the sky. He brought them to man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and the wild animals. And for Adam, no suitable help was found. So the Lord God caused man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of man's ribs and he closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made woman from the rib he had taken out of the man. And he brought her to man. The man said, now this is my bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman for she was taken out of man. And that is why man leaves his father and mother and is united with his wife and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. In Genesis 1 a few weeks ago, Josh shared about how God made man and woman. And it says in that passage, male and female, he created them. So from the outset, we see God created sexuality. He made them male and female, both made in his image, but designed differently. It was his plan, and then he tells them to go and have sex. In asking them to be fruitful and multiply, it's not code language. He's telling them, go and have children, go and multiply. And then it says, God saw all that he, made, all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. There was evening, there was morning, the sixth day. Notice that. God creates sex, he creates sexuality, and he says that it's very good. You know, we can treat sex as dirty, we can treat it as wrong, but as Christians, we must understand that God designed sex and sexuality, and he said it was very good. So as we turn to our passage in Genesis 2, we see how God intended sex and sexuality to be demonstrated. And at the start of the passage, it tells us that God did not think it was suitable for man to be alone. But in creation, there was no suitable partner. So Eve is created and she is seen to be a suitable partner to marry Adam. Throughout Genesis 1, if you want to read it later, you will see there are these complementary pairs. You will see light and dark being created. Earth and sky, sun and moon. Land and sea, humans and animals. And then he saves his masterpiece to last, male and female. 
God's image is expressed in male and female together, and he brings them together in marriage. So for us today, that means that sex outside of marriage is outside of God's plan for humanity. And this picture of marriage in Genesis 2 is beautiful. It's one man, one woman coming together and expressing God's image together. Marriage over the years has received such bad press. In 1958, the the average age of people getting married was, was 22 for a man, 20 for a woman. Fast forward to now, it's 30 for a man and 28 for a woman. And actually, people are getting married far later, but also far less, with over half of the people living together in our country in 2017 being unmarried. And I think that number's even higher now. Experts in our country are questioning whether marriage will eventually die out in our culture. I got married at 26, and I remember some of my non-Christian friends thinking I was crazy for getting married at such a young age. Crazy getting married to Rachel when we'd never lived together. But while the culture is rejecting marriage, the Bible presents a different picture. Hebrews 13 verse 4 tells us that marriage should be honoured by all. For some of you, your experience of marriage may have been hard and may have been painful. You may be living with that pain of marriage right now. You may have experienced divorce or separation. And we can sometimes try and avoid speaking of the beauty of marriage because our experiences haven't lined up. But we must see marriage as a beautiful gift from God. And we must realize that there is always hope in Jesus. You see, when we compare our, our, our current experience with God's ideals, at times we will feel conviction, but we will never feel shame. Like what Carl said earlier on, there is no condemnation. God never brings shame. If you have a story of a failed marriage today, then God is not bringing shame. If you, have a, if you are struggling in your marriage, God is not wanting to bring shame today. If you are in need of healing, then there is hope today. If you are struggling in your marriage, there is hope in Jesus today. As a church, we've got to be better at supporting those amongst us who are married. Sometimes, as a married couple, you, can only ask, you might only ask for help when you are in a point of crisis. If you are walking through difficult moments in your marriage at the moment, then as a church, we want to help you. We want to stand with you. We want to pray with you. There is no shame in asking for help. Please, please do not wait until it's too late before you seek help. Or don't suffer in silence. Marriage is a gift from God. Other than Jesus, uh, my wife is the greatest gift that God has ever given me. God has used her to love me, to care for me, to support me, to change me. Rachel is God's grace to me. If you knew me before I knew Rachel, you will say amen. (laughs) And through Rachel, God has blessed me with the gift of a son. Marriage is a gift. It's a gift. But if you are not married, there is, no, and there is nothing wrong with desiring to be married and asking God to provide you a husband or wife. Nothing wrong with that. But also, marriage is not the only way. The Bible presents another gift, that of singleness. And although marriage is great, I would argue that the Bible presents, uh, actually presents mar- uh, singleness as better. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7 verse 8, To the unmarried and to the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. 
Paul was able to serve God in ways that married people never could. Singleness brings opportunities to serve God with freedom, not enduring the commitments and the struggles of marriage and parenting. Yes, these things can be great, but they also can be really hard and painful. Jesus spent his, his time on earth as a single man, yet lived a perfect life. The problem is that the church is in crisis when it, when it comes to knowing what to do with single people. I have been guilty so often of being anti-single in my words or my actions, never deliberately, but when all you ever see on the stage or in the leadership is married people, when the only stories that you ever hear is the preacher telling you about his wife and children, when we talk about needing a couple to lead a ministry, then what we are communicating is that marriage is better. And that's wrong. We have to stop treating singleness as this interim stage for people wanting to be married. I don't want to be a church that does single ministry. I don't want to be a church because I want them to be, I want every single to feel fully part of this family. I don't want to cut them off from married people or children or families. No, I want everyone, everybody here to see themselves as a genuine, valuable part of the family. We're not there yet, but we're going to keep going until we get there. And if you are a married couple, I want to ask you today, who do you invite around your home? Who do you spend time with? Is it only ever other couples you spend your time with? I spoke to a a single uh, lady in the church recently and she spoke about how what she really misses, what she really feels a lack, is just doing the mundane, ordinary tasks, everyday tasks with people. She wasn't asking, can I, I wish I was invited more around to dinner parties. She wanted to do the normal, everyday tasks with others. She said that married couples get to share responsibilities and do tasks together But she said, these are her words, there's only me to do everything. We have to be better at welcoming people from our whole family into our lives, having an open door policy, spending, doing the mundane. So often we can think that we're being hospitable, but we're not. We're really entertaining. We've got to be better at opening our lives up to each other. If you're married today, God has given you a great gift. If you are single today, God has given you a great gift. And back to Genesis 2, Eve is described as being a suitable helper. Now, the word helper may make you feel a little bit uncomfortable. Some people have used this word to treat women as inferior. Husbands have coupled this passage with words like from Ephesians 5, where it says, Wives, submit on, uh, yourselves unto your husband as unto the Lord. Men have used the the Bible to control, to manipulate, and even to abuse women. And I want to say that that is wrong and should never happen. You can amen that. Yeah? If you are a woman and you are experiencing that kind of behavior at the moment from your husband, I would encourage you to reach out for someone to support you. And where necessary, that may even involve phoning the police. The passage in Ephesians 5 does not have superiority in mind, but mutual submission. Marriage is about serving one another sacrificially. Helper does not mean inferior. God in scripture describes himself as the helper. Women are not weak, inferior helpers. And it says that Eve is a suitable helper. I don't speak Hebrew, but the word suitable um, is this Hebrew word called kenedo, which is made of two words. The first is ke which means as or like, and the second word is neged, which means opposite or against. Together, this word suitable helper means opposite him or like against him. 
Eve is not just a suitable helper because she is human, although that does help because they said the animals were not suitable. She is suitable because she is a different kind of human, a female. The complementary difference between man and woman is designed by God. And so in Genesis 2, if you read that scripture in front of you, you will find three things necessary for marriage. Firstly, both partners are human. We agree with that? Both partners are from different families. That's why it says you will leave your mother and father. And thirdly, both partners display sexual differences. And that means that sex is designed for man and woman inside a marriage and any other presentation of sexual intimacy outside of marriage is condemned. This means that sex before marriage is wrong. And this means that same-sex relationships are outside of God's plan. Now, this is so different to what our culture is presenting. So different. But as a church, we need to be clear on what we believe. So why does Genesis, why is it authoritative when it comes to sexual ethics? Why do we place such a high emphasis on, this, uh, on the creation account? Well, we do this because Jesus did. He was asked by the religious people uh, if it was lawful for a man to divorce his wife. And I'm not going to speak on divorce today, but Jesus replies, but at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united with his wife, and the two will become one flesh. That's on that Mark 10 there. Jesus treated Genesis as authoritative when it came to marriage. Jesus was saying, if you want to see what marriage was always intended to be like, then go back to the creation story. Male and female giving themselves in marriage and sexual union. As I've said already, that doesn't mean that if you're not married, you're going against Jesus. If you're going against Jesus. What it does tell us is that if you want to live as God intended and God's plan is for you to be married, he will always provide someone of the opposite sex, and it will always be, and the relationship, once married, will always be sexual. After the creation account, it all goes a little bit wrong, and Steve's going to share that passage next week with us. But what happens is God forbids the eating of the fruit, and Adam and Eve disobey God. And together they eat the fruit. And Romans 1 summarizes what happens as a result of sin, wrongdoing, entering the world. It says this, Therefore God gave them over in their sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie. They worshipped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Adam and Eve believed the lie that they could be like God and sin enters the world. And that meant that rather than living as God desires, they instead had sinful desires. Some of these desires, not all, but some were sexual. In other parts of the Bible, it talks about the other sinful desires that we have. Galatians 5 talks about it like this. The acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy, drunkenness and orgies and the like. I warn you as I did before, those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Here is a heart check for us. Just to make sure we're not acting as hypocrites in this. Sexual immorality is just one on this list. How often do we place sexual sins above other things? 
How often will we tolerate jealousy or anger or gossip or selfishness in our own lives but come down hard on someone when it comes to sexual acts outside of marriage? Let's not be hypocrites in this. But I do think that the Bible is clear that any sexual relationship outside of marriage is against God's plan. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 10 says this, Or do you not know that the wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexual immoral or the idolaters, uh, idolaters or the adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanders, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. This verse shows us, some people have argued that Paul did not understand this kind of relationships that would be described now as loving, faithful partnerships. But here, this passage shows us that, that same-sex relationships were around at the time of Paul. Paul only refers to men in this passage, but in the passage in Romans 1, describes men and women. Some people have claimed that what this Paul is talking about here is not relationships we would know of, but actually relationships where male masters abuse male slaves. However, the, the, the inclusion of women in Romans 1 rules that out because... Uh, sort of male master-slave sexual relationships were only an issue for, for men and not for women. So Paul is talking about male and female relationships like we would know. Paul was really clear that sexual immorality, includes same sex relation, uh, including same-sex relationships, are against God's plan. And those who engage with them will not inherit the kingdom of God. I want us to be clear on what we believe. And I want to say that for some people, that may mean you, have, you say, actually, this isn't the church for me. But I, we have to be clear for this, because actually, even churches across our city this morning would strongly, really strongly disagree with what I've just said. I do understand. I do understand that. But I want to say that as Christians, we have used this teaching in horrible, horrible ways. The church, both locally and globally, have been guilty of turning their backs on the gay community for many years. Some suggested that the, the AIDS, uh, AIDS crisis was God's judgment on that community. I wish that the examples of the Westboro Baptist Church in America were one-off, but across the world we see churches acting horribly towards the gay community. I spoke to a friend recently who is a, uh, is a Christian, um, and, but he, who who experiences same-sex uh, attraction, would, classic, would consider himself gay. And he recalls the, the time when he overheard his parents having a conversation with a, fam a family friend. And the family friend asked his mum and dad how his condition was. He described his experience in church as a constant feeling that unless you are straight, you are not worthy enough to enter God's courts. If that has been your experience then on behalf of the church, I am truly, truly sorry. The church is a place that you should have been able to go and you should have found love. The church should be a place where you can go and confess your sinful brokenness and find love and acceptance, not hate and rejection. Because you see, for every one of us, our sexuality is broken. Whether we are addicted to pornography, whether we have a history of affairs, whether we experience lust as we walk past someone in the street, we all need to encounter Jesus and find freedom from our brokenness. Because you see, people will always gravitate to where they are loved. And if they are not loved in the church, they will look elsewhere. I want to read you an extract from this book, which is called Preston Sprinkle, A People to be Loved. He says, it's a, this, this is a story about a boy called Eric. 
Eric was raised in a conservative Christian home. At a young age, Eric realized he was different, and the other kids at school let him know it. He enjoyed relentless and ongoing bullying throughout kindergarten, and the rest of his elementary school years were tarnished with horror. I was physically, mentally, verbally, and emotionally assaulted on a daily basis, recalls Eric. My name was not Eric, but Faggot. I was, st- I was stalked, spat on, and ostracized. On one occasion, he was assaulted in a full classroom, and no one intervened, not even the teacher who was present. Throughout school, Eric was treated like a monster, a subspecies of the human race. I was told that the very essence of my being was unacceptable. I had nowhere safe to go, not even the church. In his first year of college, Eric came out to his parents and he told them he was gay. After performing an exorcism on their son, they told him, among other things, that he was disgusting, perverted, unnatural and damned to hell. Later that year, they kicked him out of the house. Eric shared his story on YouTube in 2011. In the video, he encouraged other youth who had similar experiences that it gets better. Having suffered in a hissing cauldron of ridicule and torment, Eric wanted to help others find comfort and hope to pull them through their pain. One month later, Eric killed himself. I wish Eric's story was an anomaly, but it's not. Having listened to countless testimonies and looked at startling statistics, I am disheartened to say that the Christian church has often played an unintended yet active role in pushing gay people away from Christ, sometimes away from Christ and into the grave. The ones who don't kill themselves often end up leaving the church. But here's the thing. Most people who are attracted to the same sex don't end up leaving the church because they were told that same-sex behavior is wrong. They leave because they were dehumanized ridiculed and treated like an other. That's not okay. That's not okay. You may know your Bible and be totally convinced that homosexual activity is wrong. I do. But if it is presented in an unloving, hurtful way that pushes people away, then you may have misread your Bible entirely. Making jokes about homosexuality is not okay. Claiming it's Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve, that's not a clever or funny argument. It's a poor use of our God-given intellect. Phil with you, a pastor from Bedford, King's Arms Church, he puts it this way. The church does not need to be standing on street corners with placards, but needs to be standing with those who are hurting. Read your Bible and you will find your saviour, Jesus, spending time with broken, sinful people. Jesus never starts by condemning and giving his opinion of a person's sin. Rather, he loves them. He spends time with sinners, yet does not sin. He spends time with prostitutes, with thieves, with the impure, yet he remains distinct. Does he affirm everybody's sin? Of course not. But he does love them. We need a saviour to save us from our brokenness. And that means no matter how broken your sexuality is today, you can come to Jesus. Do, you, do people feel that same acceptance when they meet us? If you believe that practicing gay and lesbian people are living in sin, they are heading towards eternal separation from Christ. If you truly desire to follow Jesus, that should lead you to have more LGBT friends, not less. And if you're struggling with same-sex attraction today, then I want to be really, really clear with you. At Jubilee, we do not believe being gay is a sin. 
We all have desires that go against God's plan and we all have to decide if we are going to submit to them or not. We all sin and worship things other than God. For some of us today, you might battle with greed or anger or jealousy or for some people, you might battle with a sexual, you might, you're, you might be attracted to people of the same sex. What is really important here is to understand that temptation is not a sin. Jesus himself was tempted yet was without sin. We are all attracted to things that we shouldn't be. And the fact that some people are attracted to people of the same sex should not cause us to treat them like they are sinning. Tim Keller describes that the church and says that it should be more like a doctor's surgery than the waiting room for an interview. We should be honest about where we are broken. We should not have to try and hide our injuries or try and look our best or try and impress but the church should be a place where the broken find a family, where pe- they, people are welcomed in, where they are loved and they are introduced to Jesus. I had the privilege of knowing people who are Christians but would describe, and would describe themselves as gay, but they choose to live a celibate life. We need to understand that you can be attracted to people of the same sex, yet still be a Christian. Yes, you can still be tempted, still desire a relationship, but in Jesus you find fulfillment by living a life which God desires for you, in which you give up sex and other desires to follow him. That invitation is the same for every one of us. We have an invitation to follow Jesus. Jesus doesn't hide the small print when it comes to following him. It tells us, he tells us that if we want to follow him, it's going to be costly. Mark 8, 34 to 35 says, if Jesus' words, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up a cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will save it. Jesus doesn't hide the cost at all. He invites us to follow him. We must be clear about the cost of following Jesus. Because to me, when I read the the New Testament, it seems like if you want to follow Jesus, you're going to lose everything. Yet if you look at the church in 2019, it doesn't seem like that. It seems like you can carry on as you are, but just add a bit of Jesus to your life. Carry on living just as you were, but Jesus is now by your side. So then when we ask people who are considering embracing a gay relationship to instead follow Jesus, we can seem like hypocrites. They might ask, so I have to give up everything, but it doesn't cost you anything? We've got the gospel wrong. And if following Jesus hasn't cost you anything, I would humbly ask you to consider if you are actually following Jesus anymore. We must get better at embracing the cost, not just once when we first choose to follow Jesus, but throughout our lives. And if you are struggling with same-sex attraction today, this request can seem absurd. Why would I give up the chance of a relationship, sex, to follow Jesus? I get it. It is a ridiculous request. But when we meet Jesus, do we realize he is worth more than anything else on offer? Suddenly, the logical choice goes out the window and the previously absurd choice becomes the only choice. Sam Albury, who wrote this fantastic book, Is God Anti-Gay? I've got like eight copies. First eight people to see me afterwards can get this. He said, I would highly recommend it. I'd also recommend The Plausibility Problem by Ed Shaw. These guys both lead churches. Um, They're living with same-sex attraction. They have a website called uh, livingout.org. I'd encourage you to visit it and This afternoon, livingout.org. It's a brilliant resource. And he and Sam Albury speaks about the cost of giving up sex. And Sam says, the win for me as a Christian is that I would know Jesus better. That is my goal. 
That's someone who has counted the cost and knows that Jesus is better than it all. Ed Shaw, the other writer I mentioned, he describes uh, our life as a walk down the aisle to our bridegroom Jesus who is stood at the end of the aisle. As we walk down the aisle, we are given amazing gifts in preparation for our marriage to Jesus. Some of us might receive a husband and a wife and get to have sex. Some of us might not. The prize is not the spouse or the sex. They are temporary things which point us to the greatest prize on offer waiting at the end of the aisle. All the things we have in this life are trailers for the best film you have ever seen. No one gets to, gets to see Jesus and says, being with Jesus is great, but I wish I'd been married. No one gets to Jesus and says, being with Jesus is great, but I wish I'd had more sex. When we receive the ultimate prize, when we realize that everything else that God, when we receive that prize, sorry, we realize that everything else that God did in our lives was preparing us for that moment. And everything else that we have ever had will pale into insignificance when we receive that prize at the end of the aisle. The prize is worth giving up everything for. So if you are married today, follow Jesus with your all. If you're single today, Follow Jesus with your all. He is worth giving up everything for and giving your everything for. I wonder if the band could join me. This is... Thank you. 